Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is Episode 66, Our Insidious and Nefarious Healthcare System. My guest, Scott Goldberg, is an assistant professor in general internal medicine at Albert Einstein College of Medicine and an attending primary care physician at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, where he sees patients and teaches residents in the primary care and social internal medicine program. Dr. Goldberg has worked closely with Physicians for a National Health Program since starting medical school. He started a student chapter at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine and became a student delegate to PNHP's Board of Directors from 2013 to 2016. From 2016 to 2019, he was a member of PNHP's Executive Committee and Board of Directors. He was re-elected to the board in 2021. Dr. Scott Goldberg, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Yeah, thank you for having me, Joe. I appreciate it. You have an interesting story. At least I think you do. What got you interested in single payer? Yeah, so um, I actually, I, I knew very little about health insurance, health care, single payer until um, 2009 when I was actually at a conference, a uh, student conference for an organization called Physicians for Human Rights um, and heard a talk by David Himmelstein, one of the co-founders of Physicians for National Health Program um, about single payer. And hearing that talk just sort of flipped a switch in my mind about like the sort of critical need for national health insurance in this country, you know, like I, you know, I graduated from, um, from college in 2005 and worked in public radio afterwards, um, for a few years and didn't actually decide to go to medical school until three years after graduating and, um, but had come at or come, you know, come at this decision to go to medicine from the perspective of someone who's interested in social justice and, and, you know, equity and, um, but more from like a global health perspective. And uh, so I just was like a few months before I was to start this pre-medical post-bac program, um, I attended this conference in Rhode Island and heard this talk by David Himmelstein and, and just thought like that, you know, there was no, there was no sort of bigger and more critical issue that I saw within healthcare for than single payer. Like there was, there would be no, I think, reform that would so drastically impact so many, you know, citizens of this country. And felt like something that I really wanted to commit my my life's work to helping make a reality. So once you got into pre med and started seeing what was going on, did it reinforce the need for single payer? Yeah, you know what I mean. I didn't see as much in pre-med that I 
as I would later see in medical school in terms of like the need for single payer. I mean, I knew when I saw David Himmelstein's speech in 2009, I knew that once I got to medical school that I would start a student chapter of Physicians International Health Program, which I later went on to do. I mean, I think that that's something I saw in my pre-medical, like extracurricular experiences. Like one of the volunteer experiences I I took part in when I was doing my pre-medical studies was um, working with this study um, that was a, like a large cohort study of people living in Baltimore who um, were living with HIV and, and, and injected drugs. And, you know, although it wasn't like the the thrust of the study wasn't looking at like their healthcare access or, you know, just in talking to some of the study participants, like it was clear that, you know, having sort of unequal access to care played a big role in, in their lives and in their health and their ability, their ability to be healthy. A lot of people like, you know, had, you know, presented to care later than they would have if, if they had, um, you know, if they had, guaranteed health care access. And that this was, you know, before the expansion of the Affordable Care Act um, or the expansion of Medicaid. Um, so these were a lot of people, particularly like a lot of single men who like had no health care whatsoever or no health insurance whatsoever, unaffordable for them to get it. So, and that was something that I saw early on, but it wasn't until medical school and obviously into residency that the need for a single payer became even more apparent. And even when you were in medical school, you joined PNHP students for a national health program. Yeah, so I went to University of Chicago and, and um, you know, one of the first things I did when I got there was, like, find some other students who were interested in, in national health insurance. And, and we all got together and formed this student chapter, and we found a, a great faculty member who became our advisor, whose um, name is Phil Verhoff, who's, you know, long time, now, now a longtime member of PNHP and is also on the board of directors of PNHP. So he was our faculty advisor. And, you know, that first year we, we did a lot of, I think, really great things just in terms of educating our student body, um, in terms of working with other groups in the community on issues that they were working on. Because I think, like, one of the biggest things that I think we probably haven't done a good job of within the Medicare for All movement is working with, like, working with other progressive organizations for whom their issue, their primary issue isn't single payer, but for whom, like, a single payer system would greatly improve um, and make their struggles, um, you know, easier to fight. So, yeah, so I formed the chapter in 2012 and then became really involved in trying to expand student chapters nationwide. So I feel honored to have worked with a lot of the sort of early student leaders within PNHP around that time in 2012, 2013. People like Richard Bruno, who's one of the first students to really be involved with the organization. Um, Danielle Alexander was another person. These people that were a few years ahead of me at other medical schools, but I really looked up to them in terms of their early involvement with the organization. And then we really worked to expand student chapters nationwide. I think now there are something like 70 chapters, um, student chapters of PHP. And at that time, I think there were maybe 10 at most um, back when we started ours. And, um, you know, we started having an annual student meeting, which was something new. 
Um, towards the end of my time there, we helped organize a National Medicare for All Day of Action um, across campuses across the country, which has continued, I believe. So, yeah, and then I was asked to be on the board of directors as one of the student delegates in 2013. So I was on the board from 2013 to 2016. And now that you've been a doctor for several years, what concerns you most about people getting medical care? Yeah, our healthcare system is so dysfunctional that it almost feels like I can't go even one encounter without feeling, without seeing how like a single payer system would make that encounter better for myself and better for my patient. Like it's just, the system is so insidious and nefarious and just generally accepted at this point. But I feel like when you peel back, you just like step, like step back just a little bit, you can see how everything about the system is so um, inhumane for patients and for providers. So, you know, I work in the South Bronx, which is an area that is where people are living in, in pretty extreme poverty for the United States. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because on the one hand, like most of my patients have access to insurance, like they have Medicaid. Most people are eligible for Medicaid, so they'll have Medicaid or Medicare. There are some patients we take care of who are uninsured, but those tend to be um, recent immigrants to the country, particularly from West Africa. But for most patients, they, they do have access to insurance. So the problem for my patients is not, it's not uninsurance, it's really underinsurance. Um, or like the insurance they have, it's so limited in terms of what they can get, particularly around you know, just um, like networks of providers, who they can see, you know, what medicines they are they have access to. So I think that's for me is the main issue is like, I mean, as a provider, like patients have, even if they have Medicaid, right, because Medicaid now is pretty much mostly privatized, they have different managed Medicaid plans. So in New York City, my patients may have Health First or Fidelis or other managed Medicaid plans, and all those managed Medicaid plans have different formularies. So, like, I may prescribe a medication to one person that I think is is right for them, but it's not actually on their formulary, whereas it may be on the formulary for another managed Medicaid plan. So, that's like just one instance where um, I think is is a big issue for my patients, which is like what medications are on formulary, which ones can they get? You know, pretty much usually if they're on Medicaid for for free or with very low cost, but it may not be the best one for them. So, I mean, the list goes on. <laughs> I could talk about that just forever, but um, yeah. Well, I, first of all, I'm going to make what I hope is a humorous comment. Well, it's a shame we can't mix and match formularies like we do for the COVID vaccines now. Totally. Or like, you know, I've worked at the Veterans Administration and residency. I rotated at the VA hospital. And the VA hospital was like an amazing place to practice medicine. Like there was one formulary for everything. You knew what was available. You didn't have to guess. You didn't have to, you didn't have to like, now I put in an order for a medicine. And then I sort of just cross my fingers that it's going to be approved and hope that the, the farm, you know, the pharmacy doesn't call me back and say, Oh yeah, this medication isn't a formula or this medication is denied. 
you need to do a prior authorization. You know, at the VA, it's a universal formula. You know what's on there. You know, at the VA, you know, like, you know that your patients are going to be able to get into the specialist that you need to see. Like, you know that you can contact the specialist. It's just, you know, we have a socialized medicine system in this country. Not even single payer. We have socialized medicine. We have like a national health service at the VA and it works. We know that the VA has lower costs, it has better outcomes, and generally higher patient satisfaction than people who have to navigate, um, you know, the healthcare system outside the VA. Well, you bring up, I think, two important points. One, in spite of some highly publicized problems, the VA actually provides very good care, perhaps some of the best care anywhere in the world. And I think that's often overlooked in discussing the, the VA. Do you agree with that? Yeah, totally. I mean, studies consistently show that the VA has the best outcomes when it comes to things like, you know, management of myocardial infarction, management of other chronic diseases. Yeah, I think I think some of the problems with the VA are publicized because it's a public system. So we, it actually is transparent, whereas like we can't, how can we criticize a private system there's nothing transparent about it. But, you know, studies do show that the VA does outperform, you know, certainly for-profit institutions and even not-for-profit institutions on, you know, important quality metrics. And at a lower cost, you know, at a lower cost for, this, for the overall system at large. I think just, you know, I generally don't give much stock to tax on the VA because, because policymakers, people want to privatize the VA. So the attacks are ways to sort of weaken the, the VA and make it susceptible to being, to being privatized in certain ways. Well, one thing I never understood is why we insist on privatizing our system even more when the evidence is clear that for-profit privatized systems well, I think they have failed. Our system is broken. You know, we have the most expensive health care and get some of the worst results of any industrialized nation. So I don't expect you to have an answer, but why do we keep pushing to make a broken system more broken? Yeah, I mean, the way that I see it is, you know, healthcare is one of the few, you know, like there are certain sort of public services, healthcare, fire department, police department, educate, you know, public education. You know, healthcare is one of the few public services that is is as privatized as it is. And we see it in, in education, in the sort of charter school movement, in the way that people have been trying to privatize public education for, you know, decades now. And so we see that in healthcare. And so for me, like the increasing privatization of healthcare is just an opportunity to take more money from, you know, the public and funnel it up towards the people that run healthcare, you know, the, the people who sit in CEO offices in the private insurance industry, in the pharmaceutical industry, and the politicians that they lobby and donate, you know, extraordinary amounts of money to, to influence how the system is allocated. You know, like if, if the public had it say tomorrow, we would have a Medicare fault system. We've seen that in polls, and we saw that most recently in all that, you know, exit polls 
in the in the presidential primaries, which was that you know, or presidential elections, which is like a majority of people favor a Medicare for all system. But the reason we don't have that is because the elected officials who make these decisions are, you know, basically backed by some of the most lucrative and well-resourced lobbies in the history of the world. And um, so it just feels like evermore, like there's just like, just trying to take out even more, you know, privatize even smaller and smaller sections of what is left of, of public insurance, which is, you know, basically Medicare, Medicaid, and the VA. And I'm sure, I'm not sure if you've talked about this in your podcast or we'll be talking about it, but, you know, we're seeing this now with the, what are called the direct contracting entities, which would be a way to take even more older adults out of traditional Medicare and place them into the hands of um, Medicare Advantage plans, which is basically private insurance industries getting paid to administer what should just be a public good. And giving people no choice in the matter. Exactly, and giving people zero choice, exactly. I want to come back to something that I think doesn't get emphasized enough, and I said I had two points. And one is that having health insurance doesn't mean that you can get access to the health care you need. And you mentioned that with underinsurance. And I just want to say that that point, I don't think, gets emphasized enough. Yeah, I mean, they often say, again, I don't know who says, or, or maybe I just heard it this last weekend at the PNHB annual meeting, but everyone thinks they have good health insurance, so they actually have to use it. And, you know, I think that's the truth, is like, people are happy with the insurance they have until they have to use it. Once they have to use it, they realize that, you know, there are significant co-pays and out-of-pocket expenses and deductibles they have to meet. And so, you know, I think the Affordable Care Act really pushed or accelerated the rise of these high deductible plans where it's basically just like health insurance name only because no one could actually, with these plans, you know, because particularly, you know, they have low premiums because people who will buy them on the exchanges are generally of in that sort of income range where they're not poor enough to qualify for Medicaid, but they're not really wealthy or they're, you know, but they're not wealthy enough to actually afford what, what health insurance costs. And so then there's kind of in that middle range where, you know, they can only really pay whatever, a few hundred bucks a month for some really terrible health insurance plan, but, um, but the deductibles are so high. So it's just like, it's basically protecting them against, you know, catastrophic care or some catastrophic injury, but it doesn't actually give them access to things that they need, like preventative care or medicines or, you know, subspecialty care if they need it. It's basically to cover them against, like, protect them against bankruptcy. And even then, sometimes it doesn't even do that. You know, we still see, like, that medical bankruptcies are the leading cause of bankruptcies in the U.S. And that's despite, I think, I don't know the exact number, so I, I don't want to, you know, don't quote me on it, but I think something like maybe a half or more of people who have medical bankruptcies actually have health insurance. And that's insane. You know, that's like, that's insane. I certainly agree that it is insane. So based on what you've said, and I think it gives you a good lead-in, how would Medicare for all help? 
Yeah, I think the one thing I would say about Medicare for All, I mean, I think the language that we use is important. I think Medicare for All now is kind of like, it's like it's generally like an accepted phrase. I, I don't think single payer <laughs> was something that most people understood, even though it's self-explanatory. Like it doesn't have a great ring to it. So that Medicare for All has been taken up as like the new slogan. You know, better than Medicare for All, like I think we should be saying, improved and expanded Medicare for all. I mean, not as catchy, let's say, as Medicare for all, but that's really what we're asking for because, you know, if you expanded Medicare to everyone tomorrow, it would still have a lot of inadequacies, you know, not covering dental, vision, or long-term care. You know, Medicare's actuarial value now is about 60%, so that's why people get supplemental care to take, you know, to take care of the other say, 40% of their care that Medicare doesn't cover. So Medicare for all isn't sufficient, but an improved and expanded Medicare for all would be sufficient. You know, if we really look at, like, the the package of benefits that the Canada's Medicare plan provides, I think that's really what we're looking at. In Canada's Medicare actuarial value is about 80% of care. So I think that, you know, that's why I think we should be talking about Medicare for all. Because I think if you ask some of my patients who, have Medicare alone, you know, they have a lot of gripes with the system. It's the patients who have Medicare plus Medicaid who are sort of best taken care of, but it's those folks who have Medicare but but aren't poor enough to qualify for Medicaid that they really fall into this gap of like not having enough money to pay for um, their co-pays, pay for their medications. Um, and I think when we talk about Medicare for all, it's like, it's important to say that we want you know, a public Medicare for all, that we're not talking about Medicare Advantage plans. You know, Medicare Advantage is just another way of of basically allowing corporations to make profits off of a public good. And we know that Medicare Advantage, you know, it has, I think over the last 10 years has been responsible for basically $300 billion of money that could have gone towards, like in the form of subsidizing and paying for, you know, private insurance companies to deliver this to deliver Medicare, it's responsible for about $300 billion that could have been spent on actually like improving traditional Medicare. So I just think like when we're, you know, Medicare for all, I think is a good slogan, but I think it's important to be clear about like that we would want obviously in a true national health insurance system to remove Medicare advantage and to improve the, you know, the package of benefits that Medicare provides. But yeah, I mean, we can talk about the ways in which Medicare for all would improve the system. I mean, I always think it's important to say that we are simply talking about just a change in the financing of the system. It wouldn't necessarily correct a lot of the disparities that we see among different race and ethnic groups. It wouldn't necessarily, you know, by, ver- by just necessity improve the healthcare delivery system, but it certainly, I think, would allow or it would make it easier to it to reform some of the problems that we see um, in other aspects of the healthcare delivery system. But I don't mean to like diminish what it would mean to, to get Medicare for all, because if we're talking about Medicare for all, we're talking about basically eliminating one of the most profitable industries in the history of, you know, in the history of the world, of the insurance industry. We're talking about a multi-trillion dollar industry. And obviously that they won't they won't uh, they won't not put up a, a fight to prevent that from happening? Well, a couple of points. 
One, on social media, I've heard people say, well, Medicare isn't that great because it also has, you know, co-pays. And I don't think Medicare has many deductibles, but it does have co-pays and there are expenses and it doesn't cover vision and dental. So I think it's important to make the point that you did that the expanded and improved Medicare for all. And one of the things in terms of racial inequities, it would be hard to change attitudes, but one place where Medicare for all would help is it could get resources into medical deserts in urban areas, in a lot of rural areas, as I'm sure you know, have lost hospitals. We could get some hospitals back in those areas. And I think that's important to realize. Mm -hmm. For sure. I agree with that. Scott, I want to thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Yeah, thank you so much, Joe. It's really a pleasure to be on your show and uh, always happy to talk about why we we need Medicare for All. Um, I hope to see it in my lifetime. As do I. I probably have less of my lifetime left than you. I think you're a lot <laughs> younger than I am. So. Okay. Well, you got to make it happen in your lifetime, then. Well, thank you. All right. Take care. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Remember to tell your family, friends, and colleagues about this podcast information about Medicare for All Explained can be found at our website, MedicareForAllExplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.